study together as we'll conclude our study of Exodus today. I wanted to draw your attention to the little box over here. Um, it's a little free will offering box um, sitting there by the piano um, to help defray the cost of um, snacks for the kids and um, the child care workers and that kind of thing. And, and so if you would like to contribute to that it, on any given week, it's over there every, um, every week. So just know that it's there if you'd like to put some money into it. Okay, so before we begin, um, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do, again, just thank you for this day and for the blessing of it, that in you we have life and breath and being. You are our God, and we are your people, and we are thankful. We're thankful this morning, Lord, for your word and for this study in Exodus that has um, revealed more to us, even in this day and age, revealed to us as your people more about your character and your nature. Help us to love, um, love you more. Um, because of that. And then, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that all that is said and done here will bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning. What are you hoping for this morning? Perhaps you're hoping that it doesn't rain anymore. Maybe you hope that you or your husband uh, will get a raise or a bonus at Christmas. Maybe you're hoping for a good result from a doctor's appointment. Perhaps even that you're hoping that your husband or your child or your grandchild will soon come to saving faith. We hope for all kinds of things and outcomes, don't we? So what is hope? The Google <laughs> dictionary says that hope is a feeling based on expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of the Bible says that hope in Scripture means to trust in, to wait for, to look for, or to desire something or someone. So from that definition, I would offer to you this morning that for the Christian, hope is anticipation centered in trust. Israel has arrived in our text at the foot of Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and she will remain encamped there for a good part or most of this next year in the text. What is going to happen during this time? What do you think that they are hoping will happen? You'll have to forgive me this morning, but I couldn't help wondering what that ordinary plain Jane Hebrew woman was hoping for. What did she think? about the things that were transpiring in the nation, in her tribe, in her family, as they encamped there at the foot of that mountain. As she was keeping her family tent and chasing the kids around and milking the goats and chasing the kids who were chasing the goats, and she cooked and she cleaned and she shared manna recipes with the other women in the neighborhood, what was she hoping for? What did the Israelites, as God's people, need to learn and experience about him, the one true God? And how would this impact their hope, her hope? From the scripture, we know that during this time of encampment, that Israel would experience God's rule and authority. And they would experience his presence 
as he now dwells in the midst of his people. So using the outline from last week, we covered chapters 1 through 18, God's gracious redemption of Israel. Today we cover the other two divisions of that outline, God's gracious covenant with Israel, which is 19 through 24, and then God's gracious presence in the midst of Israel, chapters 25 through 40. So in last week's lesson, we learned that in God's redemption of Israel from captivity in Egypt, he establishes the nation as his very own people, and he makes himself known both to Israel and to Egypt. In today's lesson, we learn that at Mount Sinai, God gives Israel his law so that they might live under his rule and authority and enjoy his blessing. This blessing then will be marked chiefly by God's presence with his people as he dwells in the tabernacle. So my aim for my lecture today is that we understand that God has the right and authority to rule his people and that he desires to dwell with them. In Exodus 19, we learn the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. So read with me, if you haven't turned your Bibles yet, to, Mos- um, to Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9. Let me read them for you. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped there in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together, And said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Kenneth Turner, in his book, um, well, he's the writer of this chapter from the book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, He says that in response to God's gracious redemption, which is up there in verse 4, look at that. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And in light of the amazing mission that God gives them, look at verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel then declared unreserved commitment to Yahweh. Look at 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has said we will do. Turner says that obedience to God, therefore, is a demonstration of their allegiance to God, revealing a heart of gratitude for his grace. He then goes on to say, Yahweh's purpose in this covenant amounted to Israel's mission to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Living in context of the entire world, if Israel would be faithful, 
it would become God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The phrases, a treasured possession and holy nation, demonstrate um, Israel's unique chosen status, set aside, set apart for, um, by God for this purpose. And then as a kingdom of priests, Israel would serve as a mediator, as a teacher, a preacher, a missionary even, if you will, to the nations concerning God and his ways. Why? That he might be known. So through Israel, the promise to Abraham that in you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed would come to fruition. So after God had come down to the mountain in chapter 19, his word then goes out to the people in chapters 20 through 23. I just wanted to share a few words on the Ten Commandments. It was just a, a different way of looking at them that I thought fit in with um, some of the things that we've been saying. And so I want to share with you again Kenneth Turner's treatment of the Ten Commandments. He gives the commandment, and then he also gives his interpretation as a bill of rights type of statement. Okay, so hang with me there. You know, with, as Americans... We have a Bill of Rights. We have the right to freedom of religion. We have the right to free press or free speech. We have the right to bear arms. We have the right to be protected from unreasonable search and seizure. So we have these rights that come to us as citizens of this country, and they are to protect us from the government or others infringing upon those rights. Well, so Kenneth Turner says that that as God gives the commands in the Ten Commandments, that he could also be interpreted as a bill of rights. So it is Yahweh's bill of rights and then the people's bill of rights. All right, so let me just go through them and see if it makes sense to you, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about them. The first one, have no other gods. That's verse 3, first commandment, um, chapter 20. He interprets this as Yahweh's right to exclusive allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh has a right to exclusive allegiance. Remember back when he reveals himself to Moses, I am that I am. He is establishing with them and for all the world to know, he is the one true God. As believers, we often look at Jesus' words in the New Testament when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But God's exclusive right as God is established way back here in the Old Testament when he says, I am that I am. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So there is an exclusive right to, um, to allegiance to him. The second one, never make a carved image, Turner says is Yahweh's right to the definition of his image. And I think it's linked um, in that to don't take the name of the Lord in vain, which is Yahweh's right to proper representation. Remember last week in the lecture, I said that one of the ideas about God's name, I am that I am, was Turner's exploring this idea of I am whoever I say I am. And I think those are linked here in this carved image and even the, the, his name, is that God determines, God determines alone who he is 
the representation of himself to mankind, to creation, and even the names by which he is to be known. And so only he has that right to define himself. Mankind does not have that right. He is God and we are not. And then finally, the remember the Sabbath day, he interprets as Yahweh's right to the Israelites' time and life. He is God and they are not, and he has set aside the Sabbath for a day of rest. The next six commandments, he interprets with a right of other people, okay? So honor your father and mother is your parents' right to respect. Interesting way to look at that, right? kind of flipping it. We say, okay, we have the right to free speech. I can say whatever I want. Honor your father and mother is your parents' right to be respected. God is establishing that in the Ten Commandments, that parents have the right to be respected. Never murder your your neighbor's right to life. Never commit adultery your neighbor's right to sexual purity. Never steal, he says, your neighbor's right to personal property. Never witness falsely against your neighbor. He says, the ne- this is your neighbor's right to honest testimony. And then finally, never covet your neighbor's house or his household. He says, is your neighbor's right to home and household security. I just thought that was an interesting way to look at it. Um, Just to park there for a while and to think about how these commandments can be seen in in maybe a different light. We know them so well. Some of you could probably quote them. And and sometimes we just, we don't pay close enough attention to what God is doing here in giving um, the Ten Commandments. It's been said that the commandments are the stipulations of God's law and that the following chapters, 21 through 23, are the social and religious application of the law. God gave laws in those chapters regarding criminal behavior, civil responsibility, family obligations, ceremonial, religious duties, and then compassion towards other people in society. Why? Why did he do this? Why did God give these laws? Because God's people must live a certain way. Why? I feel like a two-year-old. Why? 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 For their good and his glory. It's really as simple as that, isn't it? That God establishes his law, his right to rule, his authority in giving this law is for the people's good and for his glory. God's law is always good, always beneficial, always right for his people. And their obedience to it brings him glory. I want to share three purposes of the law that probably came out in your discussion questions today. But just as a reminder, the law is a mirror that shows us who we are. The mirror reflects the reality of what is in front of it. The mirror reveals our sin. Secondly, the law is a schoolmaster, or a teacher, if you will, that teaches us God's standards and how he wants us to live. 
J. Vernon McGee says, the law is an expression of the holy will of God. The psalmist says, the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the third purpose of the law is that it reveals our need for a Savior. For we cannot keep the law. We cannot live up to the standards of God. My best and your best, Isaiah tells us, are but filthy rags. It's been said that a person on a high mountain may look down on a man that's standing on an anthill and think that he is so much higher than that man is. But the man on the mountain needs to remember that he's never been to the moon. He has not traveled the galaxies. No, our attainments, no matter what they are, will never measure up to the holy will of God. According to J. Vernon McGee, this is why the law and the altar go together. So look at chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourself. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So McGee says the law revealed that man is a sinner and needs a savior. There must be an altar upon which to offer the sacrifice. There must be the shedding of blood for sin. Now, I want to say here that I want us to remember that we're discussing the, co- the covenant that God is established with the, with the Israelites after redeeming them from Egypt. As New Testament believers, with our faith firmly planted in the gospel of Christ, we relate differently to the Old Testament law. However, I believe that we should seek to appreciate the law, to understand it, and to live our lives, even today, in the spirit of the law. I don't know if it came out in all your groups, but what, um, what Katie shared this morning about how the law points to creation and how God is um, established in, through his personality and how the different um, laws go back to how God established life in the garden. Should, if that came out in your groups, it should serve, I think, as an impetus for us even to desire that, you know, to want to live in a right relationship with God, that vertical relationship, and then towards other people in those horizontal relationships. And that's what the spirit of the law as New Testament Christians, that's what the law is to do for us. What did Jesus say when they asked him, what's the most important law? What are we supposed to keep? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you go back to the Ten Commandments, that's the gist of the commandments that were given. So even as New Testament Christians, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, So back to the Israelites. The law given through Moses is God telling them how they are to behave, how they're to carry on, how they're to live in relation to him and to each other. Back up into verse 18 of chapter 20, and let's see what their response. 
all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Remember at the top of the chapter, God spoke all these words. They heard the voice of God. And down here in 18, all the people perceived this, heard this, experienced this. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that, he, that the fear of him may remain in you or with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So God's word put the fear of God in them, and that was a good thing, was it not? Do you have a fear of God? And what, what do I mean by that? Specifically, that you and I are to have a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in light of that. Yes, we are to have a fear of God that he is God and we are not. That it is his right to rule us and all the world. That he is sovereign and he does as he pleases. So we, we are to have a fear for him. It's, it is fear. It's respect. It's worship. That old, the word that we have as worship comes from that, an old um, archaic word, worship. He is worthy of worship because of who he is. And I think that should instill fear into people. He is the one true God. When my kids were approaching older childhood, I guess nowadays they call it tween years. I can't remember exactly when it started happening. But they started going out more and more and doing more and more things without John and I being in attendance or even maybe close by. And so I can remember at the specific memory, but I began reminding them as they would get out of the car, first that oldest one would said to him, remember who you belong to. In the beginning of saying this, I asked my oldest to tell me what he thought I meant. And he said, well, I belong to you and dad. But then he stopped for a minute and he said, and I belong to God. And I said, exactly. I wanted him and then all three of them to remember that what they did and where they went and what they said mattered. That it mattered because, first and foremost, they belonged to God. And secondarily, they belonged to me and their dad as our fa in our family. But it's important for us to remember. The Israelites needed to remember who they belonged to. So the fear of God is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So Israel as a nation is becoming the people of God. They belong to him and what they do and where they go matters to him. So God then calls Moses back up the mountain in chapter 24. Fast forward with me. <clears throat> and for 40 days and 40 nights, he'll spend up there receiving the instructions for building the tabernacle. So look at verse 15 of chapter 24. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. 
the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and as he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Personally, I'm looking forward to when Pastor Brian gets to these chapters. He's preaching through Exodus on Sunday nights here at Fisherville. And it wasn't too long ago that he finished the Ten Commandments back in the late summer, early fall. And so he's moving through. So we're approaching this section of Scripture. And I'm looking forward to hearing what he's going to say uh, about this. But for the time being, I want to share... What Von Roberts says quickly about the tabernacle, I think that um, we'll flesh it out more fully um, later in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but I just wanted to share um, what he has to say. He says, now that God's people are under his rule again, they are able once more to enjoy his presence. The purpose of redemption is relationship. God instructs Moses how to construct the tabernacle. The tent in which his presence is to be focused among them as they travel towards the promised land. The tabernacle consists of a courtyard and a tent inside. Do you all have pictures in your Bibles? Some of you do. You know know what it looks like. Um, It's separated into two sections, the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. Inside the holy place is is a table that holds the bread of the presence or showbread. These are 12 loaves of bread, and it reminds them that God will provide for all their needs. Alongside the table is a golden lampstand, which symbolizes God's constant watch over them to keep them from harm. And also an altar of incense, which is intended to give a sense of the nearness of God. Can you imagine smelling that, the incense? A curtain or veil screens the entrance to the most holy place. There's just one piece of furniture inside there, the ark. If the table speaks of God's provision and the lampstand of his protection, then the ark speaks of his presence. It's a chest about three and a half feet long and about two feet wide and high. Inside are the stone tablets on which God has inscribed the Ten Commandments. Above it is a separate lid which has been called the mercy seat or atonement cover. At either end are representations of a cherub. The wings of the cherubim above the ark spread horizontally over the cover to form the throne of the invisible God. God tells Moses, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. That's Exodus 25, 22. So Moses receives all the instructions from God about how this is all to be carried out. And so in the ensuing chapters, that's what um, hopefully you read or at least scanned. Flip with me over to 31, though, now that we've constructed the tabernacle. <laughs> 31, verse 18, And when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So Moses is on the way back down the mountain. He's received all of this instruction about everything that's going to happen, the law and all of that. And then he comes down the mountain and what happens? What does he see on the way down? 
The Lord has finished what he wants to say. He's bringing these tablets written by the finger of God, and he comes down to this golden calf incident. Look at 32, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your, for your people. Isn't that funny? God says to Moses, Your people. <laughs> for your people. For your people, Moses, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Oh, my goodness gracious. God is not happy. When I read these verses, what immediately came to my mind, and it might have come out in your discussion today, was the words from the hymn, um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. When the hymn writer says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's, that was my immediate connection to the Israelites in this incident. Because even, even though we can say, how in the world could they so quickly forget all that the Lord has said we will do? How can they forget that so fast and then worship this golden altar? And it was like the Lord said to me, oh, Laura, prone to wander, you are. <laughs> Um, and that is true. No matter how committed we are, no matter how faithful we are, no matter how we are growing in the Lord, um, how much we say we will do all that the Lord commands, lo and behold, out pops an idol in our lives, and we are worshiping. Back to our text, the Lord, um, the people are judged, and Moses intercedes for them. In 32, he talks about laying his own life down. What a sacrifice he is willing to make for this people. God tells Moses that this act of idolatry will have consequences for the nation. And then he tells them this. He's going to send an angel to lead them now, but his presence will not be with them. In 33, 30, um, 33.3 and following, the, we find that the people will mourn over this. He says, I, God says, I will not go up in your midst. Moses again intercedes for the people, asking the Lord to go with them. And he says this in, in verse 15 of 33, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. I can remember the first time I ever studied Exodus in depth and came across this verse. It was amazing to me that Moses asked this of the Lord and that the Lord granted his request. It made me love him all the more and there have been times since then that I have asked this very thing of God. Lord, if you are not going there, please do not let me go. Just put a stop in front of me. Because if you are not there, I do not want to go. In chapter 34, the stone tablets will go into the ark. They, they'll be replaced by God. Moses has another encounter with the Lord where the Lord reveals more of his attributes. And I think in the lesson brought out how important these words are in verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So we learn so much more about the Lord, even as Moses intercedes for Israel, asking the Lord to go with them, and the Lord reaffirms that Mosaic covenant with them um, at the end of chapter 34. What we learn from the following chapters, 35 through 39, is that God gives great instructions. I mean, if you read those, you will see detail and precision and an orderliness. You'll see things that are aesthetically pleasing, beautiful even. Um, And he provides the means by which those instructions will be carried out. That should be some hope to us when we feel like we are so ill-equipped to do something, is that he not only gives the instruction, but he provides the means. He provided it in craftsmen and skilled tradesmen, and he provided it in the means. In fact, he provided it so much that in in chapter 36, the, the craftsmen had to go to Moses and say, tell the people to stop bringing stuff to us because we have more than we need to carry out. You remember where all of that material came from? All of that, um, yeah, from the Egyptians. So they, um, they had more than enough. The people gave freely, the text tells us. These were free will offerings of the people. We also learn in these chapters about uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I just loved reading that. He's, he's from the tribe of Judah. And he was filled with the Spirit of God to construct and craft the tabernacle and its furnishings and all the priestly garments. And the text repeatedly tells us through that section that Bezalel and all the others did exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses. So then we come to the end of Exodus. Look in 39. I want to read... um, Verse 32 of 39, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed, and the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded. And then go over there to 42. They're going to show everything. Look at 43. Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it, just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done. So Moses blessed them. So we come to chapter um, chapter 40. I hope that you have, uh, that you read it in your lesson. I was planning on reading the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, I do want to pick up at 17. The first seven, 16 verses are Moses receiving the commands from God about how to do the, how to lay it out, what, where to do. So then in 17, it picks up here. Now in the first month of the second year of the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its socket and set up its cords and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering on the top of the tent, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it in the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle. And set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of testimony just as the Lord had commanded. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. He set the arrangement of the bread in order on it before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He lighted the lamps before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded. 
Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in the front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded. He placed the labor between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. For from it, Moses and Aaron and the sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the courts all around the tabernacle of the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord. The word means the weight of the word. I want you to think about heaviness. As heavy as you can imagine. The glory of the Lord rested on that tabernacle. It filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel had set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For for throughout their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in sight of all the house of Israel. In sight of all the house of Israel. The Lord God is in the midst of his people. All his people. Moses and Aaron, Miriam, Bezalel, and all the craftsmen and the skills tradesmen, the tribal elders, the men, the children, and the women, the ordinary, everyday Hebrews that were amassed at the foot of that mountain had the presence of the Lord in their midst. They now have a new hope. All Israel will learn that there is no hope in the gods of Egypt. They are to learn that there is no hope in idols made of gold. All Israel is to learn that their hope is in the Lord God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Their hope is to be centered in their trust in him. Their hope is in their waiting on him. Their hope is in their looking to him and their hope is in their desire of him as israel lives under god's rule and authority they will experience god's blessing they will experience god's hope let's pray our heavenly father i thank you so much that you are our hope that you have made the way that we have trusted in what we have come to know in the gospel of our lord jesus christ I thank you that in you, we not only live and move and have our being, we have eternal hope. We have the forgiveness of sin. We have restored relationship. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. I pray that as we continue to peel open the pages of Scripture and see your hand, that we will come to love you all the more. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.